Before this episode officially begins, we'd like to give a preface of sorts. First of all, we recorded this conversation before the Supreme Court decision on this issue in June of this year, so some of our information won't match the most recent legal standard. Secondly, this is obviously a sensitive issue, and while we did our best to be respectful, we acknowledge the emotional weight of the topic, as well as our own biases, so please contact us if you feel we spoke unfairly or without the open-minded approach we value on this show. And that said, here's the episode. Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 103. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me today, we have a returning guest, Charlotte Graham. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about TRAP laws, and for those who don't know, TRAP stands for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers, and TRAP laws, at least for many pro-choice individuals, are very insidious. Obviously, there are people who stand on different sides of the coin, and at the outset, we'd like to say that we are both pro-choice individuals, so for those who disagree and are pro-life, we completely understand, but as always, we'd like to have an open-minded conversation about this, so if you have conflicting ideas or comments, please share them with us. We don't want to silence your voice. We'd like to add yours to the conversation because we are only two people. But to begin with, Charlotte, I'd like to know why you wanted to talk about this today. Sure. So I will say from the outset that I am not an expert at all. I know a decent amount about trap laws, but not a whole lot. And I myself have never had an abortion. So there are certain aspects of this topic that I don't have a lot of experience with. However, I think that this topic is so important to me because it's really fundamentally about a woman's ability to make her own decisions about what's going to happen to her body and to her future. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this today is because abortion restrictions are the only news items that have ever brought me to tears on multiple occasions. And so this is something that I am very passionate about, that I worry about a lot. And I think that at the time that we're recording this episode, it's also a very timely topic because we're currently looking at an open seat on the Supreme Court. We're seeing a lot of state-level legislation coming through that's limiting abortion access all across the country. And we're seeing a lot of conversations on the national level throughout the presidential campaign that are talking about this type of restriction on women's ability to make decisions for themselves. And to clarify your comments to the audience, we're recording this in March of 2016, and this episode is currently slated to release in August. So there will be a certain disparity in information. Regarding your tearful response to certain news items, can you unpack that and maybe dig into what it is about this topic, which, much like many details in the news, is devastating to hear about for some people and very emotionally charged? What is it about abortion regulation and trap laws specifically that has brought you to tears? The first time that I ever cried at a news item was, I believe, about two years ago. I can't remember the exact date of the Supreme Court decision 
declaring that the buffer zone around Planned Parenthood and other abortion clinics that was established by a Massachusetts state court ruling many years ago, I think in the 80s, was deemed unconstitutional. I followed that case fairly closely as it was unfolding. And the premise of that case was that the 35-foot buffer zone around the Planned Parenthood clinic in Boston was preventing pro-life activists from having full free speech rights and the ability to talk directly to patients who were walking into that clinic. And I remember that the sort of poster child of the pro-life side of that argument was this little old Catholic lady who was talking about how it's very difficult to be persuasive when you are forced to yell at somebody from 35 feet away. It's much easier to have a conversation with them in a normal tone of voice and talk to them directly about the decision that they're about to make. And that idea upsets me so much. The thought that a woman who has made the decision to go to an abortion clinic because she's in a position in her life where she cannot care for a child for financial reasons, for emotional reasons, for mental health reasons, because she's in an abusive relationship, because this is just not the right time for her to have a child. That is a decision that generally a woman has already made when she is walking into the abortion clinic. And to suggest that those women should be convinced otherwise is very infuriating to me. To question a woman's judgment in that way is very upsetting. And I remember that that ruling was, I'm pretty sure, unanimous in the Supreme Court. And I remember being very, very disappointed in Ruth Bader Ginsburg (laughs) because of that decision. And I think that was also part of my emotional response. And there's a lot in there that I'd love to respond to. First, your phrasing of it's not the right time for that woman to have a child for whatever reason, which is truly her business. I would add to that for critics of abortion that it's arguably not the right time for a child and unborn life to have her as a mother because there's a lot in our society and I suspect around the world that insists that women's main role in life is to be a mother and not every woman wants to and in the same way that not every man is qualified to be a father, women of various lifestyles have different emotional attachments and priorities and values and principles. And I do think in America, as again, I suspect around the world, we've painted women with the same brush to insinuate that motherhood is or should be their first priority. And that's a deep cultural root that I think should be reexamined in a lot of ways. I think in a lot of ways, women are painted into a corner by that idea, because there are certain things that women want to do early in their lives that having a child would prevent them from doing. I know for myself, if I had had a kid when I was in college, that would have completely thrown off the opportunities that I've had going forward now. And I'm so grateful that I didn't have that to cope with. But there are so many women who do have to deal with that situation in college, in high school, whatever time frame. And I also think, as we'll get into later, that it becomes a very black and white issue for those who are pro-life. And they say, well, it's as simple as a life that either survives or is killed for whatever reason does not survive and therefore does not exist. And it's much more gray than that, as a few of the articles you sent to me that we will, as always, post with this episode pointed out, as is often the case with any public debate, especially those surrounding moral disagreements of any sort, the issue itself becomes black and white in the minds of many people. And I would argue, as I think you might agree, that there's a lot of gray area. And for me, one of those being that mothers who choose to get abortions, who may have made up their minds and are standing firm on that decision, 
are aware and cognizant of the choice, and I'm not trying to insinuate that they regret it, but that at our cores, I believe we all have consciences and feel for other people, feel empathetically, and even if we recognize that a decision is hard and may hurt or hinder other people, that does not mean that we cannot act for our self-interests without also considering the feelings of others. And my only point there being that a lot of pro-life arguments I've seen accuse these would-be mothers of being heartless and killers. And the idea of whether or not the fetus is considered a living thing is a point of later discussion, but to insinuate that these would-be mothers don't care about anything or are purely selfish I don't think is fair. And I would even go as far as to say that those who are pro-life and are making that argument very staunchly may be moral in their minds, but similarly, I think could be seen as selfish in that their defense of what they see as morality is an attempt for them to stick to their values in the same way that a would-be mother who's going to go through with an abortion is sticking to hers. And to insinuate that she's any less of a person or has any less autonomy than you do simply because your argument has a more detached set of ideas because the abortion is not affecting your body directly, to me seems a little bit ridiculous. And I'm sorry if I was convoluted in my description there. I like what you said about the different sides of the coin in terms of that argument, both being about maintaining one's own moral values. One place where I struggle with pro-life arguments is that the pro-life argument often includes the idea that every life matters and that it's very important to preserve lives once they've been conceived. And again, like you said, there's a lot of gray area in terms of at what point is a fetus considered a life or a child. And I think that that is something that's difficult to grapple with for people who are at any place on the spectrum of this topic. And to simplify or maybe add to what I had said earlier, the pro-life side to me often comes across as insinuating that the would-be mother who's going through with an abortion or would like to is being accused of being thoughtless. You didn't think this decision through. Let me try and persuade you or convince you of one, why you're in the wrong, and two, that my side is right. And it's a very human trait to try to argue and debate. And I completely understand that. I think it's often done in a very condescending or angry tone, which doesn't help anyone's argument, even if you were in the right. And I think we have to move past this belief that society holds that women are purely emotional and never act out of rationality or logic, because it also implies that abortion is on some level in being a woman's choice, an issue of being not only a wrong choice for some people, but one that cannot be made in the woman's mind, which is a further degradation of female autonomy that doesn't sit well with me. And I know that pro-life individuals don't see it that way. And I'd very much like to hear how they would articulate their stance. But to me, it comes across as labeling women and as a result, those who would be getting abortions illogical. And labeling women's choices as illogical and immoral and incorrect. I like what you just said about further chipping away at women's autonomy, because that really, in my mind, is the root of this issue. I think that if you control what happens to a woman's body, if you can prevent her from having her own control over what happens to her body, you can control her future. You can control the ways that she's able to interact with the world at large. Limiting access to abortion resources and other preventative resources like contraception prevents women from being able to make decisions about how their body will 
essentially be used by society. There's a certain aspect like you just touched on that women are designed to be mothers and nothing else. And that is outrageous to me. I think that that is a very dangerous idea that has existed for a long time in human society. And we are finally at a place where the medical procedure that can enable women to take control over their lives in this particular way is safe. Let's not kid ourselves. Abortions have been performed throughout history. It used to be an extremely dangerous procedure. And we've developed the medical technology to perform surgical abortions that are very safe. Abortions are a safer procedure than colonoscopies. More people die from colonoscopies than die from abortions. So the argument that abortions need to be made more safe is completely ridiculous in my mind. And there are medical abortions that are not surgical, that are performed through pills that change a woman's hormonal makeup to essentially reject the fetus. And that carries even less risk than a surgical abortion. But they're both very safe procedures. And the suggestion that those procedures need to be made more safe to protect women's health is, I think, a complete misdirection from the true purpose of anti-abortion regulations. And this idea of safety is very key to me and women's health because I think many individuals on the pro-life side, and again, for those who are listening that are pro-life, please correct me if you feel differently, if this is not how you would articulate, because I don't mean to speak as though I do fully understand, but with my limited and subjective perspective, this is what I've gathered, that arguments surrounding health and safety are purely biological and may not take into account psychological factors. And I would argue, not being a medical expert or even moderately informed, that a mother's stress must have an impact on the baby. And I would cite science author Annie Murphy-Paul, who gave a TED Talk on the learning a child does before they are born. And she mentions that in the autumn of 1944, German troops blockaded Western Holland, this is during World War II, and over the harsh winter that followed, food grew increasingly scarce. And when the Allies liberated Western Holland in May of 1945, they ended what came to be known as the Hunger Winter. But the fetuses of the 40,000 women who were pregnant at this time were clearly affected. In addition to increased infant mortality, higher risk of disease and slower metabolism well into adulthood suggest to researchers that the baby adapts its body to the information it is given in utero. And because of this research, I don't think it's unlikely that the stress of a potential mother could have a deep and troubling impact on the psychological development of a child, in addition to their physiological growth. Just as the mother's food intake can impart a story to the child, I believe that her stress levels, potentially induced by extreme guilt, confusion, and societal pressure, can leave a similar mark. I don't think it's inconceivable that a mother, perhaps a teenager, who did not want a child and intended to have an abortion, but was prevented from doing so primarily out of guilt and maybe pro-life individuals who continued to either berate or judge her. Or lack of access. The difficulty of getting to a clinic where she could obtain an abortion. Precisely. But in my mind, I'm thinking of the social pressure, being told by other people that you're wrong for getting an abortion, or indeed considering the stress of being helpless and feeling helpless. That psychological state and that knowledge that 
you're about to have a child that you don't feel prepared to have and various other things, I think would have a chemical impact on the child because the stress has a chemical impact on the body regardless of one's sex. That's been proven to be true. And so I would ask those who are pro-life to think about the qualitative arguments versus the quantitative arguments, because I would agree, if possible, it is best to save a life, but it's not as simple as that. And you should think about the quality of life that person will have, similar to the elderly who might suffer from various ailments and conditions as life goes on. It's important and admittedly dark and grim to think about their quality of life as they get older and indeed experience quantitatively more life, but qualitatively they might be suffering. And I don't believe that the comparison is a perfect parallel, but I think it's worth considering the type of life that you're trying to give to that child and to that mother because you might in the long term, at least in my perspective, be producing mutual stress and misery. And perhaps that child who indeed survives develops a terrible relationship with a mother who had to struggle doubly hard to make ends meet and provide for not one, but now two mouths because she has a child to take care of. There's a lot of social and, of course, economic stress placed upon that now family. Yeah. I feel like we're dancing around the regulations that are making access to abortion more difficult. So let's actually dig in and talk a little bit about what we're alluding to. I looked most closely at regulations in the state of Ohio because that's where we both live for the time being. When this episode's released, you probably won't be living here anymore, Kip. But in the state of Ohio, the two so-called trap laws that are in place right now are that centers that provide surgical abortions are required to have similar or the same structural standards to other health facilities that perform much more complicated surgeries. So for example, another version of this law that's currently being debated in the Supreme Court in Texas states that abortion clinics are required to have eight foot wide hallways that will enable two gurneys to pass each other, which is completely unnecessary in an abortion clinic because you're never going to have two people on stretchers needing to pass in the halls the way that you would in an intensive care unit or a surgical center that's performing really complicated surgeries that take many, many hours and where people are under anesthesia for extended periods of time. And then the other trap law that's in place in the state of Ohio is a two-parter. The first part, which is the case in a lot of states that have these restrictions, is that the abortion clinic is required to have a transfer agreement with a private hospital because public funding cannot go toward performing abortions. That was a Supreme Court decision that was made, I believe, in the 90s. I can't remember the name of that case. But that requirement means that publicly run hospitals cannot be part of that transfer agreement with an abortion clinic, at least in the state of Ohio. And then the corollary to that is that the hospital with the transfer agreement must be within 30 miles of the abortion clinic. This poses a lot of issues for abortion clinics that are located in smaller cities that may only have one private hospital. For example, in Toledo recently, I think within the last year, there's been a really big fight over the one abortion clinic in Toledo being able to remain open because I believe that the only private hospital in the city is a Catholic hospital. And so they were having a really difficult time getting that transfer agreement signed because of the religious affiliation of that hospital. And it turned out that they were able to get that transfer agreement to go through. And so Toledo still does have an abortion clinic, which is good because a lot of people live there. But that is a really restrictive requirement. And you and I had also both watched the John Oliver segment on trap laws, which is very much an inspiration for this current episode. 
And he cited a number of troubling details, at least for those like you and I who are pro-choice, one of which being that the lead physician at an abortion clinic, I believe in the South, was accused of being a sex offender, as were his other employees, because the abortion clinic was located within a specific radius of a school, which is absolutely ridiculous and appears to be a legislative last resort to remove an abortion clinic because of personal beliefs. And while I respect those who state and stand for their beliefs, I do think that means of following through on one's principles is very underhanded and deceitful and clearly wrong. And I think there are more mature ways of discussing or even debating those issues than accusing someone of being a sex offender, which is a very serious label, both socially and legally, to give to someone. Also one that has no grounding in what's actually going on in an abortion clinic. The notion that an abortion clinic acknowledges that women have had sex and may not be ready to carry that child to term, so therefore tacitly endorses recreational sex rather than procreative sex, is that where that idea comes from? That abortion clinic employees are sex offenders? That is just, that's beyond my comprehension. (laughs) I don't even understand where that connection comes from. Nor do I, and I think it is a very loosely constructed argument John Oliver also pointed out that in some states like Mississippi, there is only one abortion clinic, and oftentimes these clinics are under tremendous stress and may not remain open, which would require women, including women too young to have a valid driver's license, to travel across state lines and also very long distances. There was one case also mentioned by John Oliver of a 13-year-old girl in Texas who had to drive four hours only to be turned away. There are also mandatory waiting periods in 27 states that require a 72-hour period between an initial consultation and the actual procedure, which to me seems clearly designed to instill seeds of doubt and guilt in the would-be mother. And to deter women who either don't have the time or can't afford to make that trip more than once. If you take off work so that you can go and get an abortion, and then it turns out that you have to come back three days later, that's going to really affect your ability to go through with that procedure. Because for a lot of people, it's very difficult to take time off that frequently from your place of employment. Likewise, if you are traveling 400 miles to get to the abortion clinic, you're probably not going to be able to either stay in a hotel in the city where the clinic is located until the waiting period is up or make that trip a second time in such a short period. And then there are those like Dr. Willie Parker who were forced by state laws to inform patients of possible complications and also to make illusory connections between having an abortion and the increased risk of breast cancer. And he is, as a medical professional, required to say that by law, although on video that was shown on John Oliver's show, he also adds that the state can't prevent him from giving his professional medical opinion that there's absolutely no connection in any study or medical exploration of that claim that links any increased risk of breast cancer (laughs) with having an abortion. And similarly, there was a law that John Oliver pointed out, I believe in North Carolina, where an ultrasound is required to be shown to a would-be mother who intends to have an abortion. But the loophole that was made by legislators, if the mother truly didn't want to see, is that she could cover her eyes and ears to keep from watching or seeing the ultrasound which is a rather immature way to respond to the accusation that you are trying to induce guilt in the mother who does not want to see this and has already made that decision. And throughout the articles that we've read and John Oliver's segment that we watched, a lot of the legislation was clearly based in emotional rhetoric with an attempt to 
manipulate a certain emotional response in these would-be mothers. And I was very intrigued, and I'd like to hear what you think, to see that certain legislators who use the defense of women's health as a scapegoat and a reason for these trap laws were in fact female legislators. I was a bit surprised because I think perhaps in my desire to view certain problems more simplistically, I expected mostly men to be insensitive to these problems. But I also suspect these women may have been misinformed or may be pro-life to the extent that this is their rationalization of why these trap laws should exist. And I'd really like to know what you think about that. Yeah, that is something that I have a hard time with. I would like to jump back to what you said about the ultrasound. There are multiple states that require that women either see an ultrasound or listen to the fetal heartbeat before they are permitted to have the abortion procedure performed on them, which is just pouring it on pretty thick. In my opinion, that's something that's really, like you say, it's designed to elicit a very specific emotional response and is completely unnecessary for this procedure. And I find that really frustrating that there are people who think that they can make some kind of convoluted argument that will conceal the fact that they're really just trying to control a decision of a person that is not them. That's like what it comes down to for me. And then as far as female versus male legislators putting this agenda forward, I honestly try not to think too hard about it because there is a part of me that is very saddened by the idea that there are women out there who don't have this level of compassion for other women, which is a, that's a very, I'm aware that that that's a very biased opinion. And there are plenty of women who are pro-life and that is a valid opinion to hold, not one that I can comprehend. And I will be very open about that. But I think to a certain extent, it's very helpful for that political agenda to have a woman on the stand testifying on behalf of restrictions that prevent women from accessing abortions because there is some sort of association that, well, if this woman is saying that this law is a good idea and that it's promoting women's health, then that can't be wrong if there's a woman testifying that. And there is a final component I'd like to touch on before we conclude this conversation. And to remind the audience, this is, of course, a single conversation about a very complex issue, which neither of us think we could fully encapsulate in one dialogue, nor, as we've said, do we consider ourselves medical or societal experts. So this podcast will likely revisit the topic at some point. But before we close, Charlotte, are there any final points you would like to make? I mean, the first thing that I would like to say, which I've been saying in asides to you throughout this recording process, is that this conversation has been more difficult to have than I anticipated. I think this is something that I feel very strongly about, but something that's very hard to articulate for me because I'm trying to do it in a very considered way. I think when I talk about it not in a recorded setting, I am maybe more free with my words than I have been today because I've been trying to be very careful about the things that are coming out of my mouth. So I would just like to acknowledge that this is, like you just said, this topic is a very complex one, and we are certainly not qualified to have the be-all, end-all opinions on this topic. But the other thing that I would like to close with, I think, this is really what it boils down to for me, and I have alluded to this throughout our conversation. I think that the issue of abortion and abortion regulations is sort of a screen for the patriarchy to hide behind. I think in a lot of ways, this topic is one that has a lot of very emotional baggage attached to it. I think it's very difficult to 
pull apart all the threads of what's going on with abortion because there are so many different reasons that people have their particular opinions about the subject. But I think that what it really comes down to, again, like I said earlier, is about controlling what women can do with their bodies, with their futures. And I think that the establishment, by which I mean the patriarchy, is very scared most of the time. I think whoever is in the position of power in a system is always scared that the power is going to be taken away. And I think that the patriarchy, however you choose to define that for yourself, is kind of running scared. I think that women have made a lot of strides in the last hundred years, which is incredible and very important. And that makes the systems of power shift. And that makes people very nervous because men, not all men, but men as an entity stand to lose out when that happens. And I think that what scares me so much about these abortion regulations is that they are very thinly veiled attempts to maintain that control and maintain women's position as lesser in our society. And you've mentioned control as it relates to the body and lifestyle. And perhaps I continue to harp upon this point unnecessarily, but the mental experience of being told either that your argument is wrong or that you aren't thinking thoroughly enough or feeling truly or compassionately enough. Or that you're being selfish. Precisely presents an emotional and mental stress. And those feelings are, I would agree with you, a form of patriarchal and in the way our society is structured, legislative, governmental, and political control that is very problematic. But as is evident perhaps more in this episode than others, we do want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between, for issues both complex and maybe more simplistic ones. We know that we are only two or few voices, and we'd like to add to and expand this conversation. So what are some things you would like the audience to consider after listening to this conversation? One thing that I wonder about, because you're right, I think a lot of the conversations that I have about this topic are with people who, for the most part, agree with me or agree with most of the premises of my opinion. I'm most curious, actually, to hear back from listeners who don't agree. More than posing questions for listeners to think about, I would rather have listeners pose questions for us because I do think that I have formed this opinion without hearing that much from the other side. And I wonder when it comes to my own interpretation of this topic, if there is a pro-life argument that I would find salient, because most of the arguments that are being made on the legislative level, I find ridiculous, but that's not to say that there aren't compelling arguments being made on the other side of this conversation. That's a very fair point. And I would encourage listeners of various beliefs to consider why you believe what you believe and from whom or from what you've constructed your beliefs and in what environments they have developed over time and also how they might have developed. If you've always felt a certain way or if you previously felt differently than you currently do, I think that sort of self-reflection is very worthwhile. I would also encourage listeners to be politically active, to voice your opinions, to speak with your legislators about how you feel, and to vote accordingly to learn not only about abortion regulations, but about any political issues that you feel very passionately about, this being one case, and act accordingly to defend what you believe. Because I do think a democratic society is best when people are in an articulate and respectful fashion, voicing their opinions and listening to those of others and responding accordingly. 
And I'd also be very curious to hear from international listeners what regulations look like in your countries and nations and how they differ or might parallel those in the United States and if those public discussions resemble those that are happening in our country. And Charlotte, one, for coming on, but two, for agreeing to discuss what is obviously a very fraught and sensitive topic. Thank you. It was great to have you on. Thank you for having me. Of course, we were happy to. But as we just said, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have any feedback, comments, or opinions of any kind, please reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter or on Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to and reviewing the show, as well as sharing it with someone you think might also enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.